0: He is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, that's not bad, actually. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, I'm not sure exactly when this greeting... I I know that the greeting is very old. Um, There's actually a tradition from the Eastern Orthodox Church that it began when Mary Magdalene appeared in Rome before Emperor Tiberius, and she greeted him with the words, Christ is risen. Well, as we celebrate this historic event, um, uh, I, I do invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. That's where I'm going to start. Um, but as we celebrate, we should just take a moment to um, observe where the the, the the surrounding culture is at as we come now to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as we look at the surrounding culture, you know, it's just, you know, reading about um, just... Some different ways in which our culture can currently be described and 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 the very first thing I want to say is that it is increasingly um, a skeptical culture. It is a culture marked by increasing skepticism, particularly with respect um, to Christian faith and truth um, and and so um that, skeptics, uh, that skepticism has led and it's, it's uh, resulted in another reality um, that um, some of these cultural observers um, are, are using to describe uh, the surrounding world. And that is, it's a world that's also losing its sense of ultimate meaning and purpose. Um, the term that's used is, is that more and more the culture is being described as uh, moderate nihilism. A moderate nihilism, because um, it's it's not that you know there is no sense of meaning and purpose in the surrounding world. That would be um, uh, too, taking that, that view too far. But it is a sense that that ultimate sense, that transcendent sense of meaning and purpose, is increasingly uh, being lost. And this has led to a third thing. And this is where um, this period of time is, is being referred to as an age of anxiety, an age of anxiety. And, and this is more than just you know the anxiety caused by COVID-19 and the pandemic and all the uh, uncertainties that are connected to what we've just come through and, and still are coming through. So, um, but this, this anxiety is something that goes deeper into the spirit, deeper into the soul. It's, it's kind of an existential crisis that the, the world is beginning to note. And what we want to say is on a Sunday like this, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection, but especially on Easter, we need to recognize that the resurrection answers the challenges of skepticism, the challenge of a loss of meaning and purpose, and the challenge of this existential anxiety. And so we come this morning and we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. The New Testament insists that the resurrection was a historical event, that it was a miraculous, it was a supernatural event in the history of the world. And this answers these modern challenges. With that in mind, we're now going to rehearse the resurrection as I read from Mark's account in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Would you stand for the hearing of God's word? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that is, the body of Christ. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, "'Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?' And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large.' There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Again, would you pray with me? O Lord our God, we celebrate the glorious raising of Jesus Christ from the dead, May the same Spirit, which was at work in the raising of Christ, be present now. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to lay my watch down as if it's going to help me. It's kind of the sign of the preacher that, you know, (laughs) he doesn't care. Anyway, (laughs) it's the last time I'll look at it. So anyway, um, I want to begin as as we we think about uh, the importance of the resurrection. I want to begin um, by looking at it in terms of uh, the resurrection as an an historical event um, and the historical basis for Christianity. Now, prior to the resurrection, we just have to, to kind of back up a a little bit, and remember that on the night of his arrest, the disciples scattered in fear. In fact, at the crucifixion, only one disciple was present. That was John. Peter, if you recall, the night before, had actually denied Christ three, three times. They were frightened, And following um, the the crucifixion, you can only imagine how dejected, um, even somewhat disbanded um, uh, that the disciples had become. They were not anticipating, they were not uh, expecting uh, a resurrection from the dead. In Mark, we read how and why this was going to all change. On the day following the Jewish Sabbath, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went to anoint the body of Christ with aromatic spices. And, and this was not so much to preserve the body as it was a simple act of affection. It was an act of devotion to the Lord. And it's early in the morning. Uh, the sun has just risen, we are told. And the first thing to notice about this account or that I want to highlight... Is, is that Mark writes this not as if he were writing a mythology. In other words, he doesn't just simply refer to an unnamed kind of group of women who went to see uh, the tomb, or like a fictional town, um, naming these kind of—creating fictional characters. No, he names these historical figures, these women— And he does this because they are serving an important purpose. They are serving as eyewitnesses. And so giving their names, you could go to them. You could say, is this true? They could deny it if it were not true. So the very first thing is to see that he is, and this is true of all the the, uh, gospel writers, that they write this as history. They're not writing this as a fable. This is not written like a parable. This is written as history. History. Now, the women are wondering to themselves how on earth they will be able to move the large stone in front. And as they approach, they see that the stone has, in fact, been moved. In the other Gospels, we read more specifically that an angel came from heaven and removed the stone, and now the stone is just laying in front of the tomb, the the open tomb. And going into this empty tomb, which would have been like a cave, it would have been kind of carved out of a soft rock, it would have had some shelves to lay bodies, and then in the back is where um, they would take the, the, the last body, they would usually push the bones into the back of this kind of cave-like tomb. But when they go in, um, all they, they're confronted with this personage, here, it's just described as a young man dressed in white, but in the other Gospels, you know, it's described as like light, you know, radiantly shining from his face. His, his, his clothing was like lightning, um, and it's very clear that this is not a mere human. This is not a mere mortal, but this is an angel from the Lord who is speaking to uh, these women, and uh, there we read that they're shocked, they're, they're alarmed, they're fearful uh, and afraid. And, and again, all this is, is, is showing us that they were not going to the tomb thinking, oh, let's see if he's risen from the dead. It's just the complete reverse. They're going with their supplies that they had just purchased the night before to anoint, um, uh, to dedicate the body. And they're even wondering, you know, um, we didn't really plan ahead very well. Hopefully, there will be some people there that can help us move the, the, the large stone. Um, but then they're shocked when it's already moved. And they're alarmed by the, this uh, angel and, and the words that the angel um, gives to them. And there's an additional note of historical authenticity in all of this. And that is that it's women who are recorded as the first eyewitnesses, both to the empty tomb, later we'll read that they meet with Christ as they're on their way to the disciples uh, with Jesus Himself. Um, but what's of note is that it's 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 the women who are the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Well, why is this notable? The reason this is interesting is if if. You know, the, the disciples had decided, hey, let's create a religion. <laughs> let's, let's invent a resurrected Savior. You would not have used women as the first witnesses, the first eyewitnesses. Here's why. Because in the ancient world of this time, uh, the, the testimony of women was not always viewed as trustworthy. In fact, in a Jewish court of law. Um, It was not accepted as trustworthy testimony, as credible testimony within a legal court of law. So if you were to invent, like if you were making this up to create a religion, you most certainly would not have created uh, the first key eyewitnesses and made them uh, women, unless it was a historical account and you are reporting what actually took place then it makes perfect sense. This is what Mark and the other gospel writers are doing. And the the significance of all this for us can hardly be underestimated. So we learn from this that Christianity is founded on a historical event. Like the crucifixion, his resurrection took place at a certain place at a certain time. And for the early church, these events regarding the life of Christ, especially his death and resurrection, became the foundation for their faith. Now, why is that significant? Because many people today do not understand the basis of Christian faith. They believe that the basis for Christian faith is rooted in some kind of psychological need, you know What, what did Marx say that religion is the opiate uh, for the masses? Well, it's something like that that people think, well, the real basis is this psychological need that they have to have a God to, to help make sense of a world and, and to be able to confront the, the pains of this world, and especially death. But the Bible says, no, that is not the basis of our faith, and nor is it you know some you know, people recount this this very emotional mountaintop-like experience that they had with the Lord or some answer or seemingly miraculous event that took place in their life. So, that's why I believe. Well, that may be why you believe, but that is not, according to the New Testament, the basis for Christian faith. And nor is it the practical benefits of faith that leads to, very often, changed lives. But the reality is, there are a lot of philosophies. There are a lot of self-help, you know, um, uh, 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 ways of thinking that can change—at least externally—can change your life and make it better. It's not the change in life that serves as a basis of Christian faith. Now, the New Testament is very—it's it, it, very emphatic in that—that that it is the death and resurrection of Jesus this historical event that takes place outside of us roughly 2,000 years ago that serves as the basis, whether you feel it or not, whether you you need it psychologically or not, whether it changes your life or not, this is the basis. And it is the issue that has to be addressed by the skeptics. Some of you, maybe if you're thinking critically, you'll say, well, I can see how this is an inference of the passage taught in Mark, this historical basis uh, for Christian faith found in the resurrection. But does Scripture explicitly teach that our faith and hope is founded on this historical event? And the answer is yes. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this explicit when he argues that if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. There is no basis for at least biblical New Testament Christian faith. So I'm turning now to just 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in this passage, Paul is addressing a false understanding held by some of the Corinthians. Um, and, and that the, the false um, way of thinking was that the dead, they, they were some were teaching apparently, that the dead are not in fact raised, that there is no future life after this one, and certainly no bodily uh, future life after this one. And so the Apostle Paul in verses 12 and 13 just simply makes the logical deduction that if the dead are not raised, if that's what you're saying, then the resurrection of Jesus is ruled out. Just this kind of basic logical conclusion And then in verses 14 through 19, the apostle considers the significance of saying that Jesus was in fact not raised from the dead. So if you take that premise, then here are the conclusions. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. The very first thing is all that we've been preaching, all that we've been declaring and proclaiming, it's all It's all empty. It's all worthless. And he continues, not only is their message garbage, but in verse 15, they are flat out liars. Verse 15, for we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact he was not raised. so our preaching is worthless. We are in fact liars. And then he continues, all this being true, then their faith, verse 14. It's not just their preaching. It's not just that they're liars, but their faith itself is in vain, verse 14. And then in verse 17, uh, Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's empty. And worse than this. You and the result of that is there is no salvation. you are still in your sins. the apostle writes there's no forgiveness, you are still in your your sin, your guilt, your shame. there is no future possibilities of of uh, of life um, if Christ has not been raised at least from the position of the New testament and finally, Paul sums up this this argument by saying in um At the end of here, verse 19, he writes, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Given all the cost that the early Christians faced because of their faith in Jesus, if this isn't true, everything's a sham. It's all worthless. It's all a lie. And our faith, it's just, it's, 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 shameful. It's it's a pity, um, and the result of this is you might as well just you know, like the philosophers say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's all there is. Is what the apostle is saying. Thankfully, Paul's argument is designed to help the Corinthians take their false understanding to its logical conclusion to show how absurd it truly is. Indeed, Paul declares that his message is not in error. For indeed, there is a future hope, a hope for victory over death. Verse 20, but in fact, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's important language because what he's saying is not only has he been raised but this has tremendous implications for how we look at our future, because he says his death is like the first fruits of those who will one day be raised. And the critical term there is this idea of the first fruits. The first fruits were the, the, the early signs of a harvest. They were the, the beginning um uh produce, the, the fruit that was coming as a result of their 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 planting um uh earlier. And they would take those those beginning um, uh, produce, the fruits of their harvest, and they would offer it as a sacrifice, as the first fruits, and they were a symbol of that which was to come. And just as the first fruits are part of the same harvest, the idea of the resurrection of Jesus is viewed as one event with the future resurrection of all those who have faith in Him. So it's one event. And so the resurrection of Jesus actually secures. It it confirms the future resurrection of those who die in Christ, who die with trust and faith in him. And then skipping down to verse 24, we see that the resurrection provides us with hope even over death. Then comes the end, Paul writes, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, he reigns presently at the right hand of God. And he is in the process of, putting, of, of winning this grand victory and triumph over all of his enemies, the final one being the great enemy of mankind, that, that enemy of death itself. Um, death is uh, an unnatural reality from the biblical worldview. Death is not a natural part of nature, um, uh, according to um, uh, the Scriptures, and indeed, this is something that will be corrected. It will be resolved on that future day when Jesus returns and death is completely reversed. And uh, we, whether we've, we've previously died or alive at the time, we will receive these new, eternal, physical um, bodies when Jesus uh, comes back. This means that death itself has ultimately been defeated, there's a little story of a, of a father and a son and, and they're driving in a car. And the window's down and, and a bee flies in um, to the car while they're driving. And the son has a very serious allergy to bees. And if he's stung, his life could be in danger. And so recognizing the situation, the father just reaches out and grabs the bee in his hand. And then very soon after he grabs it, he lets it go. And then the son's again, he's alarmed. And the father's able to tell him, son, you don't have to be afraid. Look at my hand. The stinger is in my hand. The bee is no threat to you. And in the same way as the bee loses its stinger when it stings, so death lost its sting when it stung Jesus. And this is part of our celebration today. The hope the resurrection brings is not just something, um, however, that is focused on the future. That's part of it. But it's a hope that transforms how we live in the present as well. So this is um, a living hope. I'm going to just turn briefly to Colossians chapter 3. And There are two things here to note. The first one is something you just need to know. The first thing to note is what this passage is saying is that when a person places their faith in Christ, they are in some spiritual, mysterious, maybe even a, a mystical way, they're connected to Jesus. And they're connected to, to him in such a way that the the Bible understands um, that when he died, spiritually speaking, we died with him. And all of our sins were paid for. They were um, uh, atoned for by Christ uh, in his death, and we share in that perfect atonement in his death. And in the same way, when Christ was raised, We were connected to him, and we were spiritually raised with him. And in a practical way to think about this is the same power, the the power of the Holy Spirit that brought Jesus to life, that same spirit, because we've been raised with him, is at work within us in the present. That same spirit is bringing and has brought, if we have faith in Christ, he has brought our soul and spirit To life. And that same spirit, with the same power that raised Christ from the dead, is at work slowly, sometimes painfully, (laughs) slowly, at work in changing our affections, changing our hearts and our desires, changing our ability to understand who God is and what God is about in the present uh, world. And so we see this. Uh, the Spirit at work. Now, he says in verse 4, if, well, I mean, if you look at a Christian, you don't, you know, you don't see anything different, nothing glorious about them. The work is, is spiritual in nature, and you may see a difference in terms of changes in their attitudes and, you know, maybe becoming a more grateful person, a, 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 a more caring person, someone who, whose life just changes direction, but you don't see, in a literal sense, the glory. And so he says in verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that means that when Jesus returns, whatever kind of celebration we're having now will pale, pale in comparison to when Jesus returns and when that glory is made visible. And when we are joined with Christ, it will not be A time where we have to fear condemnation. The judgment for us has already passed. And so when we see him, the Bible says we will be glorified with Christ, that we'll share in that glory, and the celebration will be amazing. It'll be beautiful. Again, in comparison, we're just have a foretaste now of that future celebration. But knowing that Christ lives in us by the Spirit now, that means there's also something for us to do. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in us, we are to center our interests in Christ. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, here's the main uh, uh, thing to do. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are heavenly. And what does that mean? Well, let's just contrast it a little bit. What does it mean to be earthly-minded? Okay, let's just think of that if we're earthly minded, all we're focused on is what's going on in the world around us. We're we're focused on the headline news. And and boy, that's talking about psychologically damaging. Um, We're focused on our daily needs. You know, we're focused on surviving. We're focused on paying bills. We're focused on all the to-do lists and the deadlines that are facing us. We're focused on, um, you know, the future and all the the uncertainties connected with the future and, you know, storing up and preparing for uh, the future, whatever that may mean. And if all we're doing is just thinking of those kind of earthbound needs, ultimately, this is very short-sighted. And it leads usually to worry. (laughs) It leads to fear. It leads kind of to emptiness, in contrast, we're called to seek the things that are above. And it doesn't mean that we totally let go. We, we, obviously, we live in this world. We have to be concerned with the things of this world. But for Christians, we need to see past the things of this world. We need to see into the spiritual world. We need to be able to be reminded of the great promises that we have uh, from the Scriptures. We need to be reminded of our forgiveness, that we have been set free from sin, from condemnation and guilt. And we need to remember and be reminded that we are dearly loved as God's sons, royal sons and daughters. We need to be reminded that God promises to provide for our needs, both now and the future. We can trust him. And we need to be seeing that there is a kingdom reality that is beyond the earthbound reality. And that kingdom wants to be made visible first in our lives and the way we live, especially as we live together with one another and as we seek to love the world around us. And so what we want to do, he's saying, is because we're in Christ, and we died, and we've raised with the, the spirit lives in us as a seal of what is to come. We need to see past the earthly uh, worlds and to see into what the Lord is doing and while the kingdom is at work all around us. And when we do, we see a kingdom that the New Testament characterizes as a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. Well, we started with a world characterized by skepticism. God answers that skepticism with an event rooted in history, without which it is nearly, it is impossible to account for the courageous proclamation of the 12 apostles, which uh, it, it began almost immediately not you know, in some far off, you know, place away from the events that they purported to have witnessed. No, it's right there in the backyard in Jerusalem where they're proclaiming the news of Christ's death and resurrection. Only the resurrection really accounts for the change in a person like Peter, who three days earlier was denying Christ. And then, you know, 40 days after Christ had returned, he's proclaiming the news of Christ publicly, boldly in Jerusalem. We need to account for why all of the apostles went forth proclaiming the eyewitness testimony that they had seen the risen Lord, and most of them were martyred because of their testimony. And we need to account for the origins of the Christian church itself. The best explanation is that tomb was empty The body was never recovered, and the reason for that is he was raised on the third day. And the world is also characterized by a loss of ultimate meaning and purpose, and the resurrection confirms that Jesus was God's Messiah. The resurrection confirms that God has kept his promise to send a Messiah, and it confirms that the forgiveness of sins is available to all who believe because Jesus paid it all on the cross. The resurrection confirms that God is not a figment of our imagination and that he has accurately revealed himself to us, both through the written word, that is the Bible, and ultimately in and through the living word, Jesus. And it means that we can know who we are, why we are here, and how we can find purpose and meaning in Christ. And in answer to the anxiety of our age, we have the comfort that God is with us, that he loves us and that having not spared his own son how will god not also along with him graciously give us all things in answer to the anxiety caused by the threat of our mortality by the threat of death we can answer back along with the apostle paul death is swallowed up in victory o oh, death where is your victory o oh, death where is your sting Because he is risen, we as Christian believers have a hope rooted in history, a hope that makes sense of our world and our lives, and this leads to joy. (laughs) This leads to comfort and joy. He is risen.